You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. (laughs) Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? (laughs) The shadow knows. From the old-time radio show to TV and movies, the shadow always sounded mysterious and ominous. Fast forward to the aptly named shadow docket. Emergency orders of the Supreme Court, short and unsigned, issued without a full briefing or arguments, often late at night and without explanation. While the shadow docket certainly isn't new, it's gaining ground on the regular docket. Since August, the court has issued more orders on the shadow docket than opinions on the merits docket. Amy Coney Barrett is probably the first justice to be asked about it at her confirmation hearings. You know, the shadow docket has become a a hot topic in the last couple of years. This past term, the court has used the shadow docket to decide issues affecting millions of Americans, from abortion to voting rights to COVID policy. And the three most conservative justices have signaled they want to use it even more aggressively. My guest is constitutional law expert Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. He's testified before Congress about the shadow docket. Steve, why are we hearing so much about the shadow docket lately? Well, I mean, I think part of it is that the court is doing more and more significant stuff on the shadow docket. I think more of it is that, you know, folks are paying attention to it to a greater degree than ever before. And the court, for all the headlines and drama surrounding the most recent term, is actually deciding fewer cases on the merits docket than at any point since the Civil War. So, you know, when you have a flurry of significant rulings coming down through these unsigned, often unexplained orders, it's no surprise that folks are paying a lot more attention to that part of the Supreme Court's work. Since August of 2021, the justices have issued 66 emergency orders compared to 60 merits opinions. So does something seem off there, or are these really emergencies? 29 were related to COVID rules, 15 to executions. 
Well, I mean, I think it's worth stressing that the denominator there is not necessarily telling us how often the court's intervening. I mean, so far this term, by my count, I think the court has granted 16 emergency applications. That's on rough pace for where we've been the last couple of years, which is 20 to 24 per term. But even that's up dramatically over, you know, prior years. June, I think part of what's going on is there have been obviously a whole bunch of external causes for increased emergency litigation. You know, part of it is that because the court is actually granting more of these applications, because more and more of these efforts are succeeding, you know, lawyers are acting as lawyers act. Lawyers are going to try to bring emergency applications in contexts in which they previously would not have. And so I think we're just generally seeing an increasingly active shadow docket be getting an increasingly active shadow docket where the more the justices seem willing to intervene early in cases to disrupt the status quo through these unsigned and usually unexplained orders, the more the parties are going to ask them to. I think that's why we're seeing the shadow docket really start to compete with the merits docket in overall volume. This term, the court used the shadow docket to decide several hot-button issues. Have you identified any issues you think they shouldn't be deciding on the shadow docket? It's hard to sort of say that there's an issue that should or shouldn't be for the shadow docket. I think the question is, is the case really an emergency? And is this really a context where the court doesn't have time to hustle the matter onto the marriage docket, to give the parties time for plenary briefing, to hold oral argument, to write, you know, the more conventional lengthy opinion? And, you know, frankly, I mean, one of the things about this term that's really interesting is that I think the court has started to react to some of the criticisms of the shadow docket. You know, two of the most significant shadow docket rulings all term were the OSHA and CMS vaccine mandate cases. And in those cases, even though those were emergency applications, the court actually held oral argument. The first time the full court has heard oral argument on an application since the 1970s. You know, we've seen the court move a couple of cases from the shadow docket to the merits docket. The dispute in Texas over whether a death row inmate could have a religious official in the execution chamber with him who could touch him and pray over him, you know, while the execution protocol was being administered. That started on the shadow docket. The court kicked it to the merits docket. So, June, I don't think we can sort of say as an abstract matter, issue X shouldn't be on the shadow docket. I think the real problem is that the court is treating as emergency things that just aren't. I mean, there was a really significant April shadow docket ruling in a case about the Clean Water Act, where by a five to four vote, the conservative justices, other than Chief Justice Roberts, stayed a district court order, stayed an injunction that a district court in California had issued against a Trump era rule, even though the district court had ruled five months earlier. And even though the parties that were asking the Supreme Court for a stay hadn't shown any harm that had resulted by dint of that district court. And so as Justice Kagan pointed out in her dissent in that case, a case called Louisiana versus American Rivers, if the court's going to use the shadow docket in cases that just aren't emergencies like that case, then the shadow docket's not for emergencies at all. And all that's really happening is that these are thinly disguised and even more thinly reasoned merits decisions. And that's, I think, why there are folks like me who have become so much more publicly critical of what the court's doing in this context. Yeah, that caught my eye, undoing an EPA rule on water quality standards. How did they even justify, or they don't have to justify, I guess, taking that on an emergency basis? It seems outlandish. And this is exactly where we are. I mean, I think that case is such a perfect crystallization where hard to see what the emergency was, given that it had been five months since the district court had ruled, even if, right, the court was sympathetic to Louisiana's claims on the merits, the district court had misread 
the Clean Water Act or had misapplied relevant precedents about administrative law, you know, why not just put that on the merits docket and deal with it in due course? And what's so, I think, striking about that decision, June, is, you know, you ask, you know, why did they do it, right? Well, we don't know because <laughs> there was no majority opinion. There was no concurring opinion. We know it was five to four only because four justices publicly joined in the dissent and not just the three Democratic appointees, Chief Justice John Roberts joined Justice Kagan's dissenting opinion, which called out the majority for, in Justice Kagan's words, abusing the shadow docket. So I think what we're seeing is more and more public awareness of a trend that really started in 2017. And the Clean Water Act case is especially, I think, galling because the decision came just two days after Justice Barrett gave this speech at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, where she says, you know, if you really think we're politicians in robes and not judges, read our opinion. Read the opinion and see for yourself if there are legal principles driving our decision making. Well, two days later, she is the decisive vote in the Clean Water Act case in which there was no opinion to read. And in some of these cases, you have lower courts having trials on these issues, and then the Supreme Court comes along and says, no, we're reversing that without oral argument, without any explanation. It's, I don't know what else to say about it. It's sort of <laughs> jaw-dropping. The key is that I think there are a lot of folks out there who think that all that matters is the bottom line. And so if I think the bottom line is okay, then I don't care about how the court got there. But the process matters here. There's a, a more recent Louisiana case about redistricting that I think is really instructive here. So Louisiana, you know, like a number of states, is redrawing its congressional districts after and in light of the 2020 census. A district court, after an extensive hearing, writes this 152-page decision that carefully sets out why he believed Louisiana's maps violated the Voting Rights Act, why he believed Louisiana was required to draw at least one more so-called majority-minority district to avoid violating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And it is a full-bore, full-throated analysis. Louisiana asked the Fifth Circuit, the most conservative appellate court in the country, to stay that district court decision so it can use those maps in the 2022 elections. And the Fifth Circuit refuses to issue a stay and writes 33 pages of its own about why, in its view, the district court decision was, at the very least, not subject to a stay and maybe even correct. And then Louisiana goes to the Supreme Court and says, hey, Supreme Court, will you stay the district court decision? And the Supreme Court stays the district court decision with nary a sentence of explanation. And so you have district courts, you know, doing their job, working really, really hard, writing really, really thorough opinions. You have the appeals courts doing their job, writing thorough opinions. And you have the Supreme Court, which in one sentence just says, nah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't see how that is a legal system that is going to increase public confidence in the Supreme Court as an institution versus the notion that the sort of the sine qua non of the Supreme Court's legitimacy is its ability to explain itself. Did Justice Kavanaugh try to make a distinction between, you know, how fast the election was coming up in one of those cases? Yes, there's an Alabama case from earlier this term where Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence in the unsigned, unexplained Supreme Court order staying a similar ruling in Alabama. I mean, you had, so the Alabama case is in some respects even more egregious, where, you know, Alabama, a bunch of Alabama voters, the day after Governor Ivey signs the congressional maps into law, they file suit. Like, they, they file suit literally as soon as they could. The case goes to a three-judge district court, which is comprised, I think, entirely of Trump appointees. The district court says these maps violate the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, it's just a lengthy opinion, says, you know, you've got to draw them again. 
and the Supreme Court stays that order. But what's crazy is Kavanaugh's concurrence relies on this thing called the Purcell Principle. And the Purcell Principle is this, you know, based on the 2006 shadow docket ruling, um, that federal courts should not change the rules for elections as the elections approach. Well, in the Alabama case, the elections were nine months away. Um, and even the primaries, which could have been moved if they had to be, were four months away. And so, you know, yeah, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, if I remember right, joined by Justice Alito, you know, writes this short concurrence trying to justify at least why the two of them voted for a stay. But if anything, their concurring opinion raises more questions than it answers, because, you know, if Purcell applies that far in advance of an election, then how can you ever have an injunction in advance of an election that's going to be effective? And, you know, I think that part of the problem here is that when you have either no explanation, as in the Louisiana case, or explanations that just don't hold up to scrutiny, as in the Kavanaugh concurrence in the Alabama case, you know, June, for those who want to see partisanship and rank politics, there's nothing to disabuse them of that conclusion. There's no analysis to point in other direction. You know, no one can say, well, you know, that's just because you disagree with how the court is explaining itself. Well, if the court's not explaining itself, what is there to disagree with? Looking at the numbers and the partisan splits, the court's liberal justices, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, dissented the most in emergency orders that were granted, but conservative justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch did so the most when the court refused to act on an appeal. So what does that tell you? One of the many interesting things about the shadow doctors, I think there's, in some respects, more interesting data about the justices' voting patterns than there is on the merits docket. So there was this remarkable moment last October. There was a case out of Maine called Doe's versus Mills. It was a challenge by some Maine healthcare workers to the state's mandate that healthcare workers in the state be vaccinated. And there was like a one paragraph concurring opinion by Justice Barrett, joined by Justice Kavanaugh, that basically said just because we're sympathetic to your claims on the merits doesn't mean we're automatically going to vote to grant emergency relief. You know, we're going to exercise some modicum of discretion in deciding when emergency relief is and isn't warranted. Basically, Barrett and Kavanaugh laying down a marker that they were going to not vote to grant emergency relief as often as they had, say, as recently as the previous term. And, June, we've seen that play out. I mean, we've seen a number of cases since October where the only public dissenters from a denial of relief were Thomas Alito and Gorsuch. And so the assumption is that Barrett and Kavanaugh did not join them. Some of these have been vaccine mandate cases. You know, the Navy SEALs case is a good example of that. Some of them have been cases about, like, for example, Texas's social media law. And in that respect, again, I think one of the stories of the October 2021 term is that the court has at least to some degree moderated its shadow docket behavior. But I actually think in some respects, even the moderated version of it is just as problematic as, you know, what we saw, for example, during the October 2020 term. And the fact that Thomas Alito and Gorsuch would go further and would grant emergency relief even more often, I think, is, you know, a sign of how close we are to this being even more of a problem than it already is. So then do the lineups on the shadow docket differ from the lineups in merits cases? There's a tendency when folks think about the court, to think about the 6-3 court or the 3-3-3 court. And I think that's not quite fair on the shadow docket. I mean, one of the things that we saw again this term was Chief Justice Roberts joining with the liberals a number of times in dissenting from shadow docket orders. And so I think the shadow docket, as much as anywhere else, 
is basically as goes Kavanaugh and Barrett, so goes the court. And, you know, one of, I think, the striking numbers of the whole term is every justice dissented at least once June in a merit case. I think the fewest was three by Kavanaugh and the chief. But on the shadow docket, there wasn't a single shadow docket order all term from which Justice Kavanaugh publicly dissented. And I think that's a sign of the times. I think that's a sign of who's basically the critical vote in shadow docket context. And I think it's all the more reason to be wary about a court that's not explaining itself, given that, you know, when Justice Kavanaugh is writing on the shadow docket, as in the Alabama redistricting case, his opinions are often, uh, shall we say, not exactly satisfying in providing a coherent, you know, sort of defensible forward-looking explanation. Thanks so much, Steve. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Remember back in May when Elon Musk tried some legalese to describe his claim that Twitter breached their $44 billion buyout deal? You know, it's a material adverse uh, misstatement. Uh, you know, if, if, if they in fact uh, have been um, vociferously claiming less than 5% of fake or spam accounts, but in fact, it is four or five times that number or perhaps 10 times that number. This is a big deal. It is a big deal, but the Delaware Chancery Court is treating it just like any other big deal it handles. And the indication is that the judge doesn't think that counting bots is the main issue. Joining me is Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. So, Eric, Musk lost the first round in court. The chief judge, Kathleen McCormick, put the case on the fast track with trials scheduled for October. 
What do you think is the real reason Musk wanted to delay until February, or was it delay just for delay's sake? Yeah, I think there was definitely a part of the strategy that really just wanted to create additional uncertainty. I think a, a lot of people who have tried to size up this case suggest that Mr. Musk is sort of fighting an uphill battle right now. I think the idea you know, was probably first and foremost just to elongate the clock so that you know, possibly more information could come out so that there would be greater possibilities to mine into the spam account and bot account data and possibly, you know, pull a rabbit out of the hat where a rabbit really hasn't been there thus far. Now, there's a second possible reason to try to elongate the proceedings, which is that Mr. Musk's own financing by its very terms expires in the spring of 2023. And if the financing expires of its own terms, that could potentially change a lot of the potential remedies that are available. It could make it harder, for example, to have a specific performance decree when there's no longer any financing in the picture. Briefly, what were each side's argument for Twitter for why it wanted an expedited trial and Musk for why he wanted, you know, until February. Yeah, I think that the, the, the Twitter account was was relatively unsurprising in terms of, 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 of where uh, Twitter's uh, lawyer, Bill Savitt, was going. Uh, to the, the expediting of a trial in a large commercial litigation case is actually pretty frequent in Delaware, particularly when it comes to uh, to these so-called busted deal cases, uh, you basically have to say, look, we've got um, what's known as a colorable claim, which is a pretty low standard because we've we've alleged some things that, um, you know, if we improve them, they're going to they're going to hold water. Uh, and the, the, the second is that uh, they, they are ongoing uh, suffering some type of an irreparable harm if they don't get resolution of the case. And, uh, you know, in, in, in many respects, both of those things were uh, were already out there kind of in the public domain. The the, the, the colorable claim was relatively uh, straightforward. And uh, and the, the, the fact that, you know, Twitter was kind of in this state of limbo for a long period of time and continues to be in the state of limbo is we don't know exactly what's happening with this deal uh, means that employees may be leaving, that commercial clients may be leaving, that the user base may be growing uncertain about what uh, to expect in terms of Twitter. And, and, and those were the types of arguments that uh, Twitter's lawyers said, you know, really do justify expediting uh, the process. Uh, moreover, they said, you know, we, we even in the merger agreement said, you know, we are going to have a termination date in October. And that also is a signal that we wanted this resolved quickly. Uh, Musk's attorneys, um, you know, somewhat unsurprisingly said, well, you know, we really want to make this case about how do you measure bot accounts? Now, uh, there's a you know big issue about whether that's even going to be a central aspect of this case uh, because, you know, the, 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 the contract itself doesn't really even talk about bot accounts, but certainly uh, Team Musk has been trying to inject that into the picture. And to the extent they can, uh, Musk's attorneys argued, you know, this is going to take a long time to try to vet all this data, to try to bring in experts, to try to understand what's going on with the data. And so, you know, somewhat unavoidably, I think uh, Musk's lawyers, you know, kind of had to make the issue of 
you know, measuring bot accounts, something that, uh, that uh, you know, um, they could convince the judge was sort of a foreordained challenge in this case. And, uh, and then the second thing that they, that they argued is that, you know, don't, ta- don't read too much into this October termination date that we got into uh, into the contract, because if you look into the terms, that, that date just continues to get moved forward and pushed forward if there's litigation around uh, this deal, which there now is. So really, the, the, the real deadline is the deadline for the financing in the spring of 2023. And, and neither of those is a, a terrible argument. You know, I, I think there is a sense in which, you know, the, the, the allegations about bot accounts you know, even though they, they are in many ways peripheral to the contract, uh, Musk's attorneys are, are definitely going to be trying to concentrate on that. So there are going to be additional arguments about that. And uh, and the the attorneys for, for uh, Mr. Musk were actually pretty good, I think, in, 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 you know, taking a little bit of the attention off of the idea that, you know, we had to settle everything by this October termination date, just to, you know, the terms of the contract were a little bit more flexible than that. Did the judge give Twitter everything they were looking for? She largely gave the Twitter attorneys what they were looking for, but not quite. She said, look, the proposed schedule that the Twitter attorneys have put forward is somewhat aggressive relative to what we've seen in past practice. She sort of surveyed other cases that, you know, had been filed in similar situations and said, look, these other ones, you know, they're big, they're expensive, they're complicated, but we still are able to get them done between, you know, 60 and 90 days. And that's what I'm going to apply here as well. I don't see any reason why we have to use a different set of rules than has applied to these other cases. We now know how to adapt to COVID if there's a spike in infections and we have to do things over Zoom. We know how to do that as well. So I have great faith, Chancellor McCormick said, in the attorneys and and the experts and my staff to pull this off just the way that we pull off any other type of busted deal case in the usual course of uh, conducting our business. And that was significant, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is that it does sort of suggest that Delaware wants to get back to its usual routines because it views those as being important for everyone who has an interest in Delaware law, in in large transactions, and and applying Delaware law to it. I think the other reason that it was significant is that it suggested, you know, in a somewhat a preliminary way, but it still suggested that Chancellor McCormick was not going to be inclined to treat Elon Musk as special or exceptional or, you know, floating above the rules that pertain to everyone else. He's going to get exactly the same type of justice that anyone else would. So with Twitter, and we're going to, you know, see how this plays out over the next couple of months. So in many ways, the, the day was a good one for Twitter, not so good for Musk, but it was a very good day, I think, for the Delaware court system as a whole. Did Chancellor McCormick give any hints about how she views this deal or what's important in the case? She was appropriately pretty guarded about expressing opinions about the underlying merits of the case. There are potentially a few things that do seem to leak out a little bit. She did specifically say that, you know, this looks like it's the type of case where specific performance would be appropriate, that money damages, you know, wouldn't compensate Twitter for all of the pain and harm and lack of closing this deal. And so, 
you know, to the extent that there there is and has been a debate about whether Chancellor McCormick would be friendly to Twitter's requested relief of an injunction forcing the closing of this deal, I think she did sort of tip her hand a little bit to say, yeah, that, that looks like it would be an appropriate remedy in this case. And so, you know, there was a little bit of a a sort of sort of movement, at least in terms of people's predictions about whether she would embrace that or not. I, I think the second thing that was, is much more implicit that comes out is that now that she has put these parties on, you know, a leash that's only a couple of months long to do all of their expert discovery, to do all of their depositions of the fact witnesses, to do all of their document review and all of their data review, it suggests that the bot counting exercise is going to have to be somewhat more limited than what Team Musk wanted. You're not going to be able to, you know, pull out just mountains and mountains and mountains of data and be able to go over it and reach definitive conclusions about it in a couple months' time. These things, you know, do take time for a full-blown review of the data. So it is at least a little bit suggestive that Chancellor McCormick is probably going to cabin the fishing expedition for bots a little bit and quite possibly concentrate a little bit more on exactly what was Twitter putting in their securities disclosures. They weren't writing about specific numbers of bots. They had a, a rough estimate, but but much of it was just sort of describing how they went about auditing their own system. And, and that's the thing that is most testable in terms of whether those disclosures had fraudulent statements in them. Did they actually audit their bot system? Did the process that they have cohere with how they described it in their filing. Twitter said that Musk willfully breached his obligation to make his best efforts to close the deal. Is that the standard? Is it best efforts? Well, they, they uh, put a standard into the contract itself, which, uh, which uh, puts uh, a duty of best efforts on Mr. Musk. There is a parlor game in Delaware law, and there has been for many years, about how courts should interpret various terms that use the word efforts. And there's a whole different set of lists of them. Um, Best efforts, reasonable efforts, commercially reasonable efforts, commercially reasonable best efforts, the list goes on and on. And in some recent cases, the Delaware courts, you know, haven't been willing to pick nits between those various types of, of provisions. They've, you know, basically said, look, you, you've got to demonstrate that you have tried. And if there's evidence that you were either not trying or trying to sabotage the deal, that's going to violate your efforts obligation. And, 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 and Twitter here, I think, is on relatively solid ground, at least given the facts that are out there publicly, that, that, that you know, that, that, that Musk not only was, you know, very quickly uh, trying to backtrack on the deal, but was even sort of engaged in, uh, you know, trying to get, you know, the SEC to investigate Twitter and uh, and was you know disparaging of uh, you know various uh, you know various employees and managerial actors within within Twitter. A lot of those are public um, uh, uh, events that are are going to be you know going to make for pretty good uh, you know documents and demonstratives in a in a judicial proceeding. Uh, and so so you know the the key thing that 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 Twitter needs to demonstrate is that. Uh, that it was Musk who breached this contract, uh, not just by pulling the plug by claiming he was going to terminate it, but by doing a bunch of this stuff, you know, all through this process. 
Uh, Musk's team is going to try to demonstrate that that no, it was Twitter that breached the contract because Twitter wasn't giving him all the information that he kept requesting and requesting and requesting. Uh, and you know, Twitter argues that you know we were complying with our obligations, but our obligations gave us some judgment about you know how granular we were going to have to be in providing him with information. And so what does this expedited schedule mean for the legal teams here? For both sides, this is now kind of an all-hands-on-deck moment. So I would not be surprising to see delivery trucks with Diet Coke and Red Bull backing (laughs) up to the law firms that are having to push forward with all kinds of depositions, document review, expert reports, and so forth. But this is not unusual in Delaware, even for large, high-profile cases. There are a lot of these large, high-profile cases that end up taking this fast track to final adjudication. In fact, that's part of what Delaware advertises itself as providing for big transactions in which you know, delay um, might mean death for the transaction or, or uncertainty is, you know, one of the worst things that you can have. And prolonging that uncertainty is even worse. So there's a sense in which, yeah, there's a big transaction, but it's not an overly complicated transaction. Um, In fact, you know, a a lot of the aspects of this transaction, uh, you know, pretty much uh, didn't leave very much to chance. And so, yeah, both sides are going to be spending a lot of effort to try to make out the best case that they can. But uh, this case, the, the facts of this case, the, the way that this contract works, uh, doesn't suggest that it's going to be, you know, rocket science to be able to pull this off. It, it's definitely the case that the party is going to be working very, very hard. But these lawyers have gotten to the finish line countless times before in cases that had similar sets of facts, though not necessarily the huge size and, and big personalities that are involved here. Finally, you've been thinking that Twitter had the advantage here. Do you still think Twitter has the advantage? Yeah, I think that, you know, Twitter um, seems to have been um, in the driver's seat even going into this proceeding. The fact that they got pretty much what they wanted in terms of a a shorter timeline, uh, playing the the delay game uh, was was, going to feed into the Musk team's uh, uh, sort of best case, and and they, they didn't get that. So if anything, the decision by uh, Chancellor McCormick, uh, you know, strengthened uh, uh, Twitter's position uh, in this deal. Uh, And, you know, we're going to learn more and the parties themselves are going to learn more um, as they go into uh, this very, very fast pace of discovery. And it may be that their own views about the case start to converge with one another. And we may see a a settlement here. Uh, You know, the personalities are big enough, however, that, uh, you know, this case could end up going all the way to litigation, uh, which would, uh, you know, know, happen in the last half of October. But that also is going to be a fairly quick trial, five days um, that are being calendared right now in the last couple of weeks of October, it looks like. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. 
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.